and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and as always, thank you so much for joining me for a brand new episode, our 86th, in fact, and our first official episode of 2019. It's a brand new year, and we have a brand new guest. To charge them with their new destiny of heading to a deserted place with only eight games to take with them that they can play for the rest of their days. My guest this week really, if you've seen the title of this episode already, needs absolutely no introduction. But I'll give you a small one anyway, just in case. Whilst originally from America in the wild wests of Virginia, my guest lived in uh, my guest currently lives in Saitama, Japan, and has for the past several years now. Before that, though, starting out his career back in America, it was during his study of mechanical engineering at Virginia Tech that my guest got interested in the modding scene for Quake and helped develop mods for that community. His experiences with mods then led him to be a part of a group that founded the game studio Ratloop. He then left Ratloop to join Real Time Associates, but then not long after, he moved to Santa Monica to join famed Crash Bandicoot studio Naughty Dog. It was there at Naughty Dog where my guest helped to develop tools and GUI systems for the team whilst they continued the development of Uncharted 2 Among Thieves, a personal favourite of mine. Whilst enjoying his time at Naughty Dog, my guest was also working in his free time on his passion projects of experimental games with his wife Keiko developing their first game, Mightier, which was subsequently nominated for an IGF award. It was after this that both of them decided to quit their jobs and move to Japan. Since then, my guest has worked on his own games, such as The Republic of Times, The Sea Has No Claim, and Unsolicited, all whilst also doing contract work for other studios at the time, work that required him to fly a lot. These long waiting times during check-ins for his flights helped to inspire his 2013 game, Papers, Please. And it is from there, here, where you might have got to know our guest for this week best. Papers, Please was an indie sensation, scoring incredibly high with both critics and players alike, was nominated for numerous awards and became pretty much a, like a public pop culture phenomenon for a while. Thanks to the critical success of Papers, Please, my guest was able to work worry-free on his next title, the thrilling mystery PC game, and Mac, Return of the Obra Dinn a game that tasks players with naming and solving the mysterious deaths of everyone aboard a ship called the Obra Dinn. Releasing in October of last year, Obra Dinn was once again another incredible success for my guest, receiving multiple 10 out of 10 scores and even featuring on most of 2018's Game of the Year lists from all publications. Absolutely insane. It is my pleasure to finally welcome a man I've been bugging for over two years now to appear on this show. I'm very grateful to call him a friend, and he's one of the loveliest people I've ever had the pleasure to chat and interact with over the years. It's the devilishly handsome and video game genius, Mr. Lucas Pope. Hello, Lucas. Hello, Liam. How are you Hello. doing, my friend? I'm good. So far, so good. So far, was, so good? Yeah, strong intro. That's uh, good. Take us right into the show. <laughs> take us right in and you no no factual corrections got it all down i hope uh i would say yeah virginia is uh, the wild east more than the wild west but everything else uh totally solid why did i say wild why am i thinking virginia wild west i am british so obviously my journey yeah i guess I west of you so that, that counts, is yeah. <laughs> technically it is also the west of what would you clarify it west of japan or east of japan oh man I guess, honestly, I would say East, but if we're talking about the cultural landscape, it it's would be the West, West right? Yeah. yeah. But you are over here in Japan, and also, like me, this is one of my rare treats where I get to talk to someone on the same time zone as me, which is so rare. And yeah, rare for me, too. So yeah. Nice. yeah, exactly. You must be doing interviews across the world with you know all those wonderful publications who are clambering to get hold of you. 
but you've okay. been uh, uh, yeah. kind enough to allow to allow me to do it first. Yeah, uh, well, I've been wanting to talk. Uh, you know, when I first met you, you mentioned this this podcast you were running, which I, I did. uh, didn't know about, but sounded interesting to me. Um, so yeah, I'm glad we can finally get down to it. Uh, I will though. I will say when I actually had to start thinking about this though, uh, it's a tough one. The sort of nature of deciding the last eight games you're going to play on an island uh, is interesting to me because it's not my eight favorite games ever. No, uh, that's true. But it's complicated because, uh, as I'm sure other guests may have mentioned, there are games on my list that I have not played. So I can talk about why they're on the list. Um, Absolutely. uh, Yeah, I think a lot of that's going to be sort of obvious, but I'll maybe try to put a little spin on exactly why, for me, those would be on this list and why I'd want to play them forever. You see, you hear that, listeners? Even Final Games has managed to slightly stump Lucas Pope. We're, We're off to a good start in 2019 here. But Lucas, dude, it's been a, I imagine it's been a crazy few months for you. Obviously, Return of Obra Dinn released in October of last year, the end of October, if I'm correct in remembering. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, only in November and December to go, but it was pretty much all everyone was talking about. Yeah, I had a little dry run on that experience with Papers, Please, um, luckily. So it wasn't totally foreign to me. Usually what happened for me is, uh, I, the game was not ready to release two months before, and I spent the last two months crunching very hard to get it yeah. ready to go. And then it comes out, and it has lots of problems that need immediate attention. So ah, yes. a lot of times you think when you're crunching, you're going to reach the final release date, and then you're going to kind of just kick back and relax or get some sleep. But for Papers, Please, and for Oberdin, it was more you're going to keep working for another two weeks straight to try to iron out all the little issues that you just I wasn't able to find basically um so luckily I was prepared for that this time I wasn't on papers please but I was on this one and the kind of rush that happened after that I was also you know I was hoping for that obviously because one of the challenges with Oberdin for me was following up papers please yes uh, I can I can't even imagine the monumental task right so kind of it was a lot of work and it's a lot of stress, but that's the best case scenario, honestly. Um, so I was extremely happy to be working and trying to sort out these issues, even though you know you don't really want that stuff uh, to ever come up. But the kind of whirlwind that I had on Papers, Please wasn't replicated exactly on Oberdin, but there was enough of it there that I could kind of not feel totally out of out of place. So, yeah. And that was, I mean, that's kind of was my best case scenario was that things would happen. It would it'd be very stressful and kind of crazy, but that, to me, was better than the alternative of people don't like my next game. That's you know, true, so. yeah. I imagine, you know, in reality, uh, you know, without being modest, you're probably expecting some, you know, some people had waited a long time for the next Lucas Pope game, and obviously there was a lot of people who were already going to be there, but did you expect just this amount with Oberdin? Like, I feel like Papers, Please was like this weird cultural significant time yeah it it didn't have as much of a splash on the games industry maybe whereas Oberdin seemed to just like change the games and game industry for like the better half of the last year yeah i don't know i i kind of went up and down i mean you're right about papers please i don't i wasn't predicting anything for papers please and i had no real expectations for that game and it was made so quickly that i didn't have time to really dwell on it uh, Oberdin took a lot longer, so I had I was up and down on that game over the years of thinking it's going to be great or thinking it's going to be terrible. 
Uh, like I all always, game projects. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, games are like that. And they, normally games, you have moments where you think this is great, and then kind of when you put it all together, you realize it's a complete mess, and, and you wasted all your time. Yeah. And I spent a long time in that zone, too. Um, but the thing that I knew from the beginning was that, that Oberdin did not have the cultural hook that uh, Papers, Please had. And I always kind of expected that to be its uh, not downfall, but its major negative is that it doesn't have this sort of uh, drawing zeitgeist that the Papers, Please had, the yeah. topical, topical yeah. nature and, and things like that. Um, but what it ended up having, which Papers, Please didn't have, is it has a little more appeal for for not typical gamers, but it's more close to like what you would expect a video game to be. It's first person. That's true. Sort of walk them up kind of um, with, you know, UI elements and things like that that you would expect to see in a lot of other games. And that kind of opened it up for a different audience that I wasn't quite expecting, um, which, but which is, you know, kind of a happy uh, accident on, on Overden. It, it did seem to, I mean, people had played, a, you know, a demo that had been publicly available for go on two and a half years now. Like, yeah, at least. Was, yeah. yeah. And that was a very early demo. I, I remember you saying something like it was maybe six months of work or, or just after that. Like, it was a yeah. sort of short amount of time. But it, it set, you know, obviously the, the one pixel sort of art frame was there and everyone could sort of see how aesthetically it was going to play out uh so they had an expectation but when it came to the gameplay i don't think anyone really had any idea until you yeah inclu- released including it. me yeah so <laughs> I, I was still figuring out the core, sort of core mechanics of that game over yeah. the four years i was working on it and they that stuff didn't get sorted out until the dash shipped basically i was making major changes to the game flow in the last month or so. That what was like the biggest major change that you can't imagine the game not having now? Yeah, you so, changed so late. Uh, for anybody who's played the game, you find a corpse and then you use the watch and then you go in to see their, you hear the audio and then you, you're put in the scene in the flashback, yeah. in the frozen flashback and you can walk around. Uh, and there's this music playing and that music, all those music tracks are about one minute long. And when they end, uh, it drops the book and shows you the new page for this person so that you can start filling in their information. Uh, and then after that, the book goes away and you can walk around some more in that yeah. scene. Uh, and previously, uh, it took you out immediately there. You couldn't walk around. As soon as the book dropped, uh, it would fill in the page and it would take you out. And that meant that the basically the pacing was all wrong because it would it was easy to play. It was easy to play through and you would get kind of dragged through the game and kind of grabbed by your collar, pulled through from one scene to the next, which basically meant you, when you lose, when you don't have control of the pacing like that, you forget things much quicker. So you would see something in the scene and say, oh, cool, well, I want to remember that, but then the game would drop Pull you, you out, out immediately. immediately. Yeah, and you could go right back in. There was nothing stopping you from going back in, but just that that sort of that pull-out transition was enough for players to start looking around for the next thing to go to and not want to go back to that current scene, uh, the previous scene. Yeah, because so, with those things, you could start going down the rabbit hole of like, oh, I found a corpse inside of this flash. Exactly, and that's exactly and what then, happened. So you would find yeah. a corpse inside, and then you would be drawn out immediately. So the, yeah. the timing was just bad, real bad. Um, and so I changed that so that you, after the book, you're dropped back into the same scene right exactly where you were again, and suddenly um, it's not perfect because... I. I made this change so late that I had so much of the design structure around this one minute uh, sort of period when you can't do anything except look around. Yeah. Um, but it really opened up the pacing. It sort of freed the player to 
play much more as they wanted to play and not interrupt them uh, in such a way that would kind of throw off their whole game. And that came in, in that came in like last minute kind of thing. Yeah, it, within the last like couple weeks, it was. In. Wow. Yeah. I that, mean, that, yeah, that, that's a tricky one because that those sort of game flow changes had been built up over years of of kind of tweaking stuff, and so to change it all. I mean, not all, but to make that kind of change to the last minute was pretty risky. But at the same time, it was pretty pretty easy on the scale of things I could have changed. I was going to say, like, it sounds like quite a monumental task to change all of that. Because, you know, if we're thinking about, what is it, 60 people on the ship? Yeah. That's 60 times you have to change that specific Well, I mean, pacing. it's not, not quite that bad the way it's programmed. But yeah. it's, it's more kind of reconsidering how the game is presented to the player. How, the, the original idea was that the pocket watch itself was sort of in control, and I wanted the player to, to feel to a little bit pow, powerless, yeah, against the watch. Okay. But that's one of those things where it, it's like a, it's an ideal or an idea you have that you think is important, and then when you actually get everything together, which didn't happen until very late in Oberdin, when you finally get everything together, you realize like that is so unimportant and it's ruining the experience. So just chuck that whole idea. And I mean, I had a lot of ideas like that where I thought they were important until four and a half years later when you can play through the game and I realized like this is nonsense and it needs to change. <laughs> I imagine um, the flow for you as well was just all over the place at that point. Because yeah, it was. Because you really also, tell what the pacing was like. Exactly. So, like I know everything about the game inside and out. So this is one of those issues where you, you kind of have to lean on those um, sort of platitudes or core ideas and hope that everything works out. Yeah. But, uh, I had done some playtesting and gotten some feedback, and it was clear to me that this was not something worth leaning on, and it needed to change, basically. And there are other things that were borderline, which I did not change, um, but this is one of the ones I did change, and, and it ended up being way for the better. But one of the nice things about this um, is that that change also led me to compose some more music, and when you're dumped, after the book reveals itself and you're dumped back in, there's this kind of much calmer music that plays, and that wasn't there until that, you know I made this change. Uh, but it adds some extra life to the scenes. I think um, after you're kind of when you're after the initial impact of seeing it, and you want to kind of explore it and walk around and and drink it in. There's a kind of a nice uh, music bed there that wasn't there yeah. before. Yeah, the soundtrack you made is is wonderful. I, I am I am constantly blown away by game creators who can also not only just make music anyway, but make make a soundtrack that can complement their game to an extent like it, it would be very easy for you to hire like a professional musician to come in or a, a, a producer to create you know a piece for Oberdin very easy like a pirate the not pirate but like a sea themed orchestral thing but it Oberdin has that but it, it it's like so complementary to the timing of everything in that game and I think yeah, that comes that, very much from the internal timing you have inside of you at making it. Yeah, that's one of the real advantages uh, of working alone is everything about the narrative and the design and the visuals and the music and the audio is all kind of wrapped up and in my mind trying to complement each other. Yes. So this is especially true of the visuals where, uh, you know, I model all the scenes and I create all the textures and I did everything and I also would then go straight into writing the shaders for those or writing the pipeline tools that I needed to make the visuals that I wanted to happen. And that sort of really 
that loop was so tight that I could do things that you, even with more people, I couldn't do easily. Um, just the way that I knew exactly how many polys to put in a model character, yeah. or I knew exactly how to mark different faces so that they would look exactly as I needed them for the shader. Uh, and that's that sort of itself thing. is an achievement, how you manage to make people look different. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I mean, that sort of thing you can do in AAA. It's just a lot more work. So uh, the really tight sort of turnaround I had on all those different disciplines really helped Oberdin. And the music is one of those where I knew exactly how the music would be used and where it would need to happen and kind of the beats that I wanted to hit with it uh, once I figured out how I was going to use the music. Um, but that really helped me uh, focus. So in a lot of cases, when you've got like really talented people working on stuff, and I'm not saying I'm really talented, but when you have like AAA talented people working on things, yeah, they do amazing jobs. They, they're very detail-oriented, and they do amazing jobs at every level of the production. So everything about it is incredible. For me, I can skip half of that because I know what's what I feel is important. So yeah. I know that... that exactly what kind of instrumentation I want and if it's really important if this sounds like MIDI or not or if, if the effects are important here or not and I can scrape I can sort of skip over the things that I have already projected yes. how they're going to how they're going to integrate with the game and not do those whereas somebody who's sort of separate is just going to do the best possible job they can do across the board yeah, so I can basically specific yeah, do discipline a worse job and end up okay, <laughs> okay. no it it totally makes sense because sometimes in AAA, there's a some people, especially myself included, like when I look at games, like I'm not particular. People say I would pick on this franchise, but Assassin's Creed, for example, it can be to the point of so over polished because everything is done by incredibly talented people to in that specific discipline to the point of such high quality that it's so detailed that it just not doesn't have a soul, but doesn't feel handcrafted and it doesn't fit peacefully together it's like yeah I, I don't know if i'd go that far i mean i like those games it's just for me my whole shtick sort of is finding a focus and finding something to focus the player's attention and also focusing my attention when i'm making the game and i think that's, that's kind what of, that's kind of what i'm trying to say is like yeah so those games don't away. have that yeah can cannot can miss that kind of focus like oh but, my god the audio in this game is incredible and it's pulling me away from the fact that all oh, the visuals are incredible in this game too and then the, the like the shooting in this game is it kind of pulls the focus away from the player instead yeah. of like as you I, yeah i think it's just for me as like a solo developer that's kind of the way i tackle this is try to figure out what is important and try to focus on it and then and then just do it. And then hopefully that matches up with the player's focus, too. Yeah. I mean, like if if you look at sort of the assets for Oberdin, there's maybe, uh, excluding the characters, there's maybe 20 or 30 textures total on the ship. And that's not <laughs> something you're going to get from a full-time artist. If a full-time no. artist is working on this, they're going to texture the whole thing. And it's one day's work. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, that is, like, a very conscious decision to, A, save me a lot of work, but also I want to... I considered that when I was making the game that I don't want a lot of textures here because I want legibility to win out over detail and things like that. So I'll, I'll use textures where I need them, where I think they help, but generally I'm not going to plaster everything with, with the texture. So, you know, that's also one of the reasons why it's actually difficult for me to work with other people at this point because 
I don't think I could give that sort of direction to an actual talented artist. I can do it to myself because I, you know, my time, as far as I'm concerned, is pretty cheap. But somebody else, I feel like if they're spending time on this, they gotta just fucking do whatever they want and go nuts and yeah. make it awesome. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, it's one of the kind of strange benefits of working alone. But also, you know, it's a negative because I have to figure that shit out for myself, and I have to, I have to always get to a point where it's okay that there's only thirty textures on the ship. You know, if if I if I reach this point where I realize everything does have to be textured, then I'm kind of screwed. And Oberdin is a little bit of that because I I got to a point where I needed sixty characters textured and articulated and clothed and stuff like that. So yeah. uh, that was my sort of huge hill that I had to climb on Oberdin was the characters. And you know, I don't want to do that again. Sure. <laughs> I mean, wasn't the game nominated for Odd Direction as well? So. I yeah, mean, I might have been around about that, right? Yeah. I might have been able to sneak that in without the characters. So I don't know. <laughs> and then, oh, man, I could talk about Oberdin all day. I haven't, I haven't seen you since. But what I do want to say is that the game is out, and um, I ha- having known Lucas for over two years now, um, I remember m- messaging you on the day it came out, just with, and this is going to sound super weird, but like overwhelming pride that it was out. Well, you helped a little bit, uh, that, so maybe that that's is, why. No, yeah. that is completely oh, that is completely overselling anything I ever did. Yes, Lucas was so kind, way too kind, to actually include me in the credits of the game. But it's more that every time I saw you during the past two or so years at various places and events and stuff like that, it was always kind of like, I wonder how he's holding up. I wonder how the game's going kind of thing. And then to when the launch trailer came out, and it, it had a date to it. And I was like, yes, this is it. My boy is doing it. He's going to get it out. And uh, and then when the game came out, I was... It's weird. Like an oversensing well, uh, uh, sense of pride for someone you know uh, having finally, you know... Not yeah. as you said, finished it because obviously you had work to do. But put a, cap, a, a serious cap on on it after, you know, four years or so. so yeah. yeah must- for, me, for me, actually, the great victory for me was finishing it in time to submit to the IGF. That's sort of my every year, every year since I started working on Overdin, October is approaching and I'm thinking, okay, this is the year I'm going to submit to the IGF. That's sort of my, my, the major milestone in my production life. Yeah. Um, and this was finally the year when actually I shouldn't have made it. Uh, that I, I didn't have time to make it, but somehow uh, I cut enough stuff and I change enough things that I could actually make the submission date. And I submitted an early version of the game before it was actually done and then updated it slightly after. Um, but that was, for me, the big relief, uh, that I I was able to submit this IGF and kind of just get over that, that sort of hill that I was trying to cross of trying to submit it every year since I started on it. So, yeah, for me, that I was mean, a big was, relief. You know, like, I, I worked on the game so long and I was so worried about how it would be kind of accepted um and in the meantime my life just kept going i have family and things like that so my stress levels naturally kind of just were worn down enough that by the time i released it was more like i just i not that i don't care but man i gotta finish this game and it that's kind of how it is every time i ship a game is it's uh it's not maybe the ideal perfect thing that i wanted but i'm so glad that i'm done kind of thing 
And I'm so happy for you, dude. And I'm, I'm, and it's incredible because this is the thing. If you have something to achieve and you, and for example, getting out in October, who knows what can happen. And for example, for anyone who doesn't know, obviously you try to ship it in time for the IGF, the independent games festival. Uh, and now Oberdin is nominated for the Seamus McNally grand prize, which is basically their game of the year. It's nominated for excellence in visual art, which is something we've discussed is something you, you know, wrestled with trying to make a sort of focus for that. You made your own audio and the whole soundtrack to this game is nominated for excellence in audio. It's of course nominated for excellence in design. It's one of the best design games in the past fucking 10 years or so. And talk about, you know, making it worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it was, yeah, it's, a real big surprise for me, actually, to get those nominations. Um, I mean, it's always being modest, but I don't think it's a surprise to anyone but you, Lucas. Yeah, I don't know. It's just when you work on something that long, you lose all sense of it, honestly. Yes. And especially for me, I make games that sort of I think I would like to play. And I'm not really considering what, you know, how many people had Mac Pluses and played those games. I'm not really running the numbers. I'm just thinking, like, I played those games. I really enjoyed them. So I want to make this game. And. Design-wise, it's not the design of that game is basically a sort of evolution of a bigger, more ambitious design that I had, and got kind of got whittled down to what it is now. So it's it's uh, it it was not a foregone conclusion that people would like the game, and you know, for me to get the nominations and to get any kind of wins like that is, yeah, that's. Um, really rewarding for me. I think really. it's yeah. I think it's incredible, and I'm, I mean, like, yeah, as I said, weird sense of pride for you for coming out. And so on top, why, on, why don't we say how, what you did in this game? Like, what, what was your contribution? <laughs> My contribution was that obviously it's a set. You know, it's basically what 1806. I forget the exact date. Uh, 1806. 1807. Well, I was seven. Maybe 1803, 1807, between okay. those dates. Okay, yeah. So between those dates, it takes place, uh, you know, on the sea. Uh, it's it's sort of during the shipping and industrial times. Uh, there's a lot of British-based voices. Uh, specifically, there's some Welsh characters in there. Uh, and having grown up in Wales myself, I'm. I'm very attuned to the sound of authentic Welsh accents and the lilt of the Welsh accent. Yeah. Yes. Um, and you and me got talking one night. Uh, I can't remember where. I think it was at some it, it, some event somewhere, and we were talking. And uh, I mentioned that I'd grown up in Wales, and you said, "Oh shit." Really? <laughs> because I need someone to check over some Welsh voice actors. Yeah. So I basically, thought you were joking. No. It <laughs> One of the stipulations for this game was that there's a lot of voice actors, a mm. lot of voice roles. And, then and the other stipulation, I didn't realize just how important it is to the yeah, game. Yeah, the, the other critical authentic. stipulation was that their accents had to be native, basically. Yes. And as an American, I know there's a British accent, and that's it. Uh, yeah. So what may be a surprise to American listeners or non-British listeners is there's a lot of British accents and they are all mutually intelligible to every British person. And they know, they will Where know they when from. somebody's from, yeah, you can, they, they can pinpoint the latitude and longitude of any person based on their accent. So um, pretty early on, I realized how critical it was to have native uh, voice actors, first off. Uh, and then also that 
I myself would not be able to determine if somebody sounded native. Um, yeah. One of the things you kind of not run into, but one of the th- kind of things you have to sort of be ready for uh, with voice acting talent is that they a lot of people can do a lot of different voices, actually. Um, a lot of people are really talented and they can do lots of different voices. Uh, but if you are not native, you may think it sounds great, uh, but then you play it for a native person. Um, like, no. And native, yeah, and they're, they'll say <laughs> no. that is that sounds... And I mean, I think everybody's been on the other end of that where you hear an actor who's doing supposedly yes. your yeah. local accent and it sounds ridiculous. So I definitely didn't want that, and it became uh, a gameplay critical thing. So when you told me you were from Wales, um, I have uh, a couple Welsh characters in the game, and so it's basically a perfect opportunity to get some help to tell me if somebody sounds Welsh. And what's yeah. funny is um, all the actors sounded great to me, just fucking <laughs> bang up great. Uh, and maybe like one or two of them were barely passable, according to you. So uh, like, that was actually really helpful. I, I was in, but this is the weird thing is because obviously we talked about it and, uh, you know, we went away and it was a couple of months later when you emailed me and uh, I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, sure. I can do this for you. And uh, and I listened to them and some of them were awful. And I was like, this sounds nothing like them. And it was all voice actors, I think, who were American voice actors who were yeah. trying to do a Welsh accent. And um, I was being hypercritical at the time because, you know, it's it's Lucas Pope's next game. I want to do the best job I can for Lucas and take it seriously. But I didn't know just at the time until I played the game how hypercritical yeah. that it was to the gameplay itself. Well, like a lot it's, of Oberdin. It's a tricky anyway. one, actually, because... For British people, it's critical, uh, but I couldn't rely on that for anybody else. So that's very I, true. I had to supplement those clues that you would get with other clues that you know people who didn't know that this is a Scottish accent or an Irish accent. Yeah, would would be able to figure that out some other way. So that was also another. Yeah. So it's reason. so for anyone who's playing, you know, in the UK or maybe who has a pretty good grip or understanding of like Scottish, Welsh, English accents, you know, in Oberdin, part of almost like a part of the game is sometimes doing some guesswork to try and piece things together and you can go off based off stuff like this is lucas's incredible design here working like their clothing you know whether the rank of them on the ship or you can go off the fact that their names or that they have brothers or or, or wives or anyone attached to them who might have a similar name and then you can go off basically their either their ethnicity or their accent and because this all works so well in tandem and what speaks to how incredibly well put together Oberdin is you know you have the the voice before you see a, a death scene you have the the voice acting and the script playing very briefly and you have the sounds of what might be happening whether it's like a squelch or like a shot or stuff that pieces together a little bit that might help you figure out and I didn't realize at the time how you know how I thought it was just like voice acting in a game. But obviously it became quite a big part for some people who could devolve what is a Scottish accent compared to an English accent about who certain characters might be in a scene. You still don't know who they are, who said it, but it narrows it down for you and helps you work yeah. that out. So I'm 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 very very honored to have been a tiny microcosm of what was yeah, a if, if you fantastic game because I've not told you if you think yes. the Walter accents are good in the game, that's because of Liam. If you think they're terrible, <laughs> then that's it's because of me Liam. as well. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, I have not told Lucas uh, how incredible his game is because I we haven't spoken much about Oberdin. We just spoke about organizing this podcast. But Lucas, you know, I played it all the way through in two settings. It is fucking wonderful. Thank well you. done, my friend. Well done. 
But it's about time that you talk about other people's games. Right, right. The whole point of this podcast. The whole point. Yeah. Like, we could talk about, you know, Oberdam for ages, and we will do soon enough over some be- well-earned beers, my friend. All right, let's just buzz through these eight games. And then, yeah, let's uh, just go through yeah. the eight games and get back to Oberdam. <laughs> or talking about Kyoto, or talking about Japan. Yeah. But it is, we, you are here, because unfortunately we're sending you away to a deserted island. We're taking you out of Saitama, and we're taking you to a deserted place where you can only take eight games. And as you already have mentioned briefly, uh, these are not your favorite games. Some of them might be games that you really enjoy, but uh, a lot of them are games that you sort of uh, taking a guess on. Kind of like people guessing on my Welsh accent in Oberdin. So we're going to get into it. And it's about time we start talking about the eight games that Lucas is going to take with him. So how about we listen to some music from the first game? And let's, of course, dive straight into it. So jumping into Lucas's final games, the eight games he would take with him to a deserted place. Uh, we're, we're starting things off pretty easy, Lucas. Uh, I don't know specifically which version of this game you're going to take with you, but I'm incredibly uh, interested to hear when you first came across it and how you think about it now with like the latest iterations of this game, like Tetris Effect uh, and stuff like that, if you have played it. But the first game on your list is uh, Alexei Pachinov's masterpiece that still stands out today, the tile-matching puzzle game featuring Tetraminos, is, of course, Tetris. Yeah, okay, so uh, this is an easy one. Softball here. <laughs> uh, I hope a lot of people pick Tetris. A lot uh, of people have picked Tetris, yes. I mean, it goes yeah. without saying, right? Yeah, so I played this first on the Mac Plus, actually. There's a really, really great version on the Mac Plus uh, with um, just fantastic one-bit art sort of on the sidelines. And it's, you know, it's just a standard Tetris game. Uh, I also really enjoyed the Game Boy version, uh, which I think everybody's played. And I have played Tetris Effect. Uh, I played an early version of it, not the final version. And Ooh, I did Mark it. let you into a, a little secret thing? Or was it yeah. his good sound? <laughs> uh, yeah, Mark set me up with just a uh, playtest. Nice. And it, it was a ton of fun. This is a game, though, that I don't play a lot, actually. I mean, I played it, you know, when I was a kid, and I played it on the Game Boy uh, to pass the time sort of thing. But I'm not a very good Tetris player, so... Uh, it's not the kind of thing where I know what I, I know exactly how I do it, but it's just one of those. Yeah, I mean, first I got to say, the kind of um, the concept of this question, the top eight games you take on the island, is gonna have games that I haven't played because generally um, I don't play games for a long time, and you're asking me to pick which games I would play for a long time. So uh, I'm gonna go back to the till for something like Tetris because I know that that one's got some depth to it. I could play it for a long time, but other in other cases, 
maybe I'm just going to assume I could play it for a long time and, and hope for the best, basically. Um, and yeah, Tetris is just an easy one, basically. I, even if every other game on here sucks, I can probably zone out and play Tetris for a couple, <laughs> a couple years. Well, depending on you know the island in which we send you to, which we'll get onto in a little bit, uh, I mean, most of your time is going to be spent either walking or like hunting for food. Or... No, just no, just Tetris. Just Tetris. Yeah. Just Tetris. Forget the rest of the games. Let's just talk yeah. about Tetris. So, what version of Tetris would you take though? Because I feel like that's quite an important part with games like this that get reissued or remade quite frequently. Uh, you know, you obviously have like the different types of Tetris players with stuff like the people who go for like the Grand Mastery that play like the arcade versions or the PlayStation One version. You have people who want like the Game Boy version of their their sort of nostalgic years, but unfortunately. The Game Boy screen is disgusting and terrible and would be hard to play in a deserted place. Like, the lighting would be terrible. Or do you go for something like Tetris Effect, which is, like, the brand spanking new version of it? What version would you think you would enjoy the most? Uh, probably, to be practical, what is the competition version now? Um... Uh... I, w- I need to talk to one Gray, of the Grandmaster versions. Gray. Yeah, so I would just pick whatever the competition version is, assuming uh, that that has the most depth. Basically. Do you feel like you have the gaming prowess and the amount of time on a, a on a deserted island to achieve grand mastery? Well, hold on. How long am I going to be on this island? It's forever, right? It's forever. Like then, how, yeah, how, I, I how long do you calculate? In forever, it? I could. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. I could, couldn't do it now, but I want you know. I want a deep a deep back end here, so I'm going to pick whatever. Are you genuinely are you genuinely pretty decent at video games? Like, can you naturally pick them up and sort of just assume how they work and and get pretty good at them? Or are games making games and playing games as anybody who makes them will know is completely different from each other? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I I probably am okay. I'm probably just slightly above average at most games, just because I've been playing forever since you know the Atari twenty. 20- 2600 in, in the early 80s so i'm not as far as like getting depth on games i'm not that great just because i don't spend a lot of time playing most games so when it comes to something like dark souls or a fighting game probably pretty terrible compared to most people but you know i can buzz through a doom 3 or doom 4 or you know wolfenstein with no problem that sort of thing so not impressive, but, you know, not terrible. Not I think people would be interested in knowing, Jara, I think that's quite an interesting question is, you know, these are not the your favorite games, and these are the games you sort of think practically about taking to an island, like Tetris. But what kind of games are the games you play when you have free time? That's a different podcast, so we can talk about that. Ah, on another podcast. episode. Yeah. <laughs> so, some of these actually qualify for that, so I'll, you know, we'll touch on that. Okay, so you can touch on that. Yeah. Okay, well, I think it's about time we move on to the next game then, because Tetris pretty much goes without saying. Uh, it's, it's. Yeah, it's you should call this podcast like the top seven plus Tetris. The top seven plus Tetris. Yeah. Uh, no, the top six plus Minecraft and Tetris. Oh wait, the top five plus dwarf. Fortress, yeah. and Minecraft Tetris, and, and Minecraft. Yeah. <laughs> All the games that are not games. They're things that evolve over time that you can just keep playing and playing through yeah. various means. Well, we should listen to music from the next game. I've never heard of the next game. You know a little more about it than I do. I can't even pronounce it correctly. So why don't we listen to some music? And let's, of course, dive straight into it. <laughs> Thank you. 
So jumping into the second game on Lucas's list, but before we do that, we have to talk about the deserted place and we're actually going to send you. And like, knowing you a little bit, Lucas, I feel like you might have thought about this a lot and then taken an easy option. Okay, where do you think I would, what's, okay then, where do, where do you think I'd, I'd go? I, d I don't know where I would think you would go. I think you would think very deeply about all of the different aspects of some places where you would go, but then choose somewhere, for example, like Delfino Plaza from Super Mario Sunshine. Like a, you know, like a, an easy town that's safe, has food, and just like everything else is dealt for, for you by okay. nature of being in this place. Yeah, that's a swing and a miss, man. I would pick, oh. I would pick something like the Lost World Island. You know what that is? It's like there's dinosaurs and Godzilla <laughs> and huge birds and things like that everywhere that are trying to kill you. So just because I want—I mean, if you're gonna give me the opportunity to go to like an imaginary island, I'm gonna pick one where there's dinosaurs, basically. I mean, is this a, like a sense out of like your? In case you get bored of the island, you have like an easy exit. No, just adventure. There sounds like the, you know something like that. I, maybe I don't need to waste my time with video games. I could just go and like ride dinosaurs or something. <laughs> ride dinosaurs. Are you assuming I'm giving you like some sort of hunting gear as well? I mean, I could fashion. There are sticks. I could fashion. You know, rocks and sticks. I'm sure I could work something out. Befriend. Are you, uh, are you a pretty a huge eagle or something? Anyway? No, God, no, Jesus. But the, we're talking about. <laughs> we're imagining things here. So, we ain't yeah. imagining things. This is the contract you signed, my friend. Yeah, okay. I mean, sign me up. I'll do it. This you this you old... send me to the island with all the crazy dinosaurs and, uh, you know, there's like the the huge insects also. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. <laughs> well, okay. So we'll send you to the island of Lost World. Technically, it appeared in a video game that Jeff Goldblum appears at the end of a long, long time ago. So technically, all good. We can send you to a dinosaur-infested island. Wait, hold on. Yeah, I don't mean actually Jurassic Park Lost World. Sorry, I realize that the movie is named that. I mean, you know, the kind of the classic 1930s, 1940s stop-motion stop animation style center, ah, journey okay. to the center of the earth kind of stuff. Yeah, okay. Like, the uh, based on, like, is it the Conan Doyle novel, maybe? Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, that's it, that's it. Okay. Shit, yeah, but I got to get that in writing. Is it a video game, though? We need to, uh, um, does it need to? I mean, by virtue of this show, I don't have magical powers. That I'm step sure I could find games. a game that it appears. Probably in. most. Oh, yeah, the, most the letter. Likely. I can meet the letter of this one. I think my my DM powers of magic to to create such fantastic situations only extends beyond video games. Yeah. Okay. I can. Yeah. I think we're okay there. <laughs> well, the next game that you're going to be taking with you to this. Uh, Dinosaur-infested island that uh, I'm, uh, I'm very impressed and, and looking forward to seeing how long you last. Uh, isn't is a uh, app like an iOS game? I believe. Yeah. You know this. You know more about this than I do. Uh, well, it's called Imbroglio. Yeah. Imbroglio. So Imbroglio. I know more, almost only because you know zero. So I play. That's true. This is this is one of uh, Michael Bro's games, and he's a fantastic designer. 
and he makes games that you can play forever, basically. So he is, if you needed to pick, say, if this was like your top designer to pick for taking with you to a deserted island, you want to take Michael Bro. Um, and this game in Broglio is one that I played for a few weeks, uh, and there is almost unlimited depth to this game based on his design. And it's not a big game. It's a sort of grid-based game with walls that block you and weapons and character stats and things like that. Yeah. But the design is so tight and so well done that it is almost infinitely deep. Uh, so it's the kind of game where you could play it and build strategies and change your strategies and change characters and change your weapon sets and do all kinds of things over time to sort of evolve your play. Um, and I didn't get far enough to do that. And he has follow-up games um, where he does this maybe better, but this is the one I played enough of to say that if I, if I had a lot of time, I would like to play a lot more of this game. So that's why it's on the list. So Michael also made 868 Hack, which is the only game of his I've actually played. Yeah, I also which, played that for a long time. Yeah. Which is a fantastic roguelike as well. Um, do you play a lot of like games on your phone? Obviously, we both live in Japan. Japan is obsessed with phone games. Not of this type. Yeah, different, different kind of phone game. Yeah, yeah different I, type of phone game. I don't play a lot of games on my phone, no. I used to, but now I... I got kids in the family, so it's more like I will block out an hour or two to sit down and try to catch up on the games that everyone else is playing on, on Steam or PlayStation or uh, Switch. So can you explain a little bit about what it is that you do in, in Broglio? Um, like, how, how, as a game designer yourself, how is this, like, tight compared to, you know, other design games by, you know, solo developers such as yourself? Well, the thing that appeals to me about about his games and this game in particular is that it looks very simple and basic when you it's kind of like chess where it's it's a a grid of things and you look at it and you think well okay I can move around and I can attack this guy and I can do that no this weapon has this power over this particular enemy or it's weak against this particular enemy or um, I can change the walls of this small map using this thing or they change in reaction to when I do that sort of thing and there's enough sort of elements like that, that uh, when you, you can ignore a lot of them at first, um, but then you start to consider them in different ways as you get better and better at the game. And they sort of, each one of those new things that you start to consider adds a whole new layer to your, how you're approaching the game and how you're playing it. Uh, and that's kind of the sort of design that I'm jealous of because I don't really design that way. Um, I sort of stay simple and, and I start simple and stay there. Um, whereas he starts kind of simple and builds and builds and builds and make this very complex, uh, in the end, um, system that is a lot of fun to explore. Um, so, yeah, it's the kind of thing where I don't actually know the depth of of Imbroglio, except that I could taste the top of it, the top sort of cream on the top, um, and I could yeah. see. Yeah, I could see into the darkness a little bit, and I expect you can see the layers underneath yeah. that. And you know, if you read deeper. reviews, you can see that it has that depth, and it is very rich. Uh, and so it's the kind of thing where I really wish I had time to enjoy that. And you've given me the perfect opportunity here. So I have indeed. I've heard a lot through Twitter about his latest game. Is it called Cinco Paus? Yeah, Cinco Paus. Uh, that, I haven't played that yet, but uh, that's another one that's probably really awesome. See that when I look at screenshots of that or like videos, I'm like, am I looking at like algebra in video game form? Like, how does this work? <laughs> I can't visually even yeah, reference actually, what it if is. If you sit down and play, they're actually very easy to start playing. At least Imbroglio and Eight Six Eight Hack were all the actual like 
act of playing it, touching on squares and moving your character around is very simple. So you kind of get swept into it easily, um, which is another thing I like. Nice. I kind of want to try. I, I think I, I think I almost downloaded Single Pass, but then I forgot. I looked at. I think it was M plus plus creator Reagan's Twitter because he keeps tweeting about it a lot. Yeah, um, people are, are really good at, at at that game, and also they got really really good at Ambrogio. Scary good at it, and it's the kind of good where you have to put in the time. But the fact that the game has that much depth is really appealing to me. I think I'm going to have to check this out. It's another game. That's the problem. That was the side effect of this show is uh, I get told about games I have no idea about, and then I really want to play them. So I'm going to have to okay. check that out as well. So let's listen to some music from the next game that's coming up. I think I can tell why this next game is coming up. Oh, the reasons as to why other people have taken it. I'm very intrigued to hear what you have to say about this, Lucas. So let's listen to some classic music from a very well-known franchise for this next game. And let's, of course, dive straight into it. So jumping into the next game is not quite the Mario game that most people are used to. Uh, for some people, it was their first basic entry into making and designing video games, especially designing levels and level design in general. Uh, it is the game that was developed by Nintendo EAD. It released uh, originally on the Wii U in September of 2015 here in Japan. Uh, it later received a release on the Nintendo 3DS uh, almost just over a year later in 2016. It is the sort of side-scrolling game and game creation tool that is Super Mario Maker. Lucas, why are you taking Super Mario Maker with you? Uh, other people take it, right? <laughs> Some people take it. Okay, so I I like Mario games. I grew up playing Mario games. It's a really good Mario game. It is a good Mario uh, game. It lets you make levels, which is great. Uh, but also, I'm to understand that one of the parameters of this uh island is that I can download stuff. Is that right? You can. You can. Yes, you yeah, can. So there are probably hundreds of thousands of levels for Super Mario Maker. So There are uh, almost infinite amount of Mario yeah, levels. Yeah, so I figure fair. I can keep myself busy with that. And uh, I don't watch, like, I'm pretty old, so I'm not uh, too hip with things like Twitch and things like that, but <laughs> I do watch some streamers from time to time for a little bit, and Mostly what I watch is people playing Super Mario Maker Super Expert. So for me, uh, I'm not good enough to play that stuff, but I could see how you can play it forever. I know secondhand that it's possible to play Super Mario Maker forever and to have fun. So that's why I'm taking it with me. There, I read a story the other day that was, I think it's about three years in the making now, since the game launched, that uh, someone has spent 2,600 hours trying to beat 
their own level of death that they created that they because the way Mario Maker works for anybody who doesn't know is that to publish a level online so for example Lucas could download it you have to be able to complete it once you have to finish it so people can't make ultra impossible levels of death that nobody can ever finish but one person is trying to basically make the the most difficult level you possibly could ever make and has spent 2,600 hours trying to finish it so he can publish it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I heard a version of that. Actually, the level is called Magnum Opus, where the guy did that and and beat it and published it. Oh, and, wow. Uh, a couple months later, uh, some Japanese guy beat it as well. So that's crazy. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing where you need some time on an island to get good enough to, to beat. So. So it sounds like for me that for the most part you're going to be playing it, not making stuff. Where most people who take it on this show would assume they're going to just be making stuff because they need to have that creative outlet to not just be playing things, but also you know designing things and making stuff. Are you going to spend much time designing things and publishing them online for people to play? Uh, yeah, it's a good point. I think that's probably one of the other reasons it's in here because I I was thinking to include a game where you could sort of virtually program. Uh, or build your own stuff, maybe like yeah. ZZT or Chips Challenge kind of thing. And I figured, well, I probably can only enjoy my own shit so much. I mean, like <laughs> things Have you like played Overdin. Through Overdin since it released. No, and I, you know that's. <laughs> and you never will. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of my curse. Is I can't really enjoy the stuff that I make. So it's okay if it has that component to it. But something like Super Mario Maker. You can do that, but also you can get a lot of enjoyment out of the stuff other people make. So, You could be the next person to create a level of death and spend 2,000 plus hours trying to finish on, it. On the island, yeah, anything yeah. goes. So, sure. Time is everyone's best friend when you when in a situation like this. You can become a Grandmaster of Tetris and also the best Super Mario maker in the world. I can dream, yeah. <laughs> the next Miyamoto. I, it's weird because like with Super Mario Maker being on the Wii U... It kind of feels like, with the nature of video games, the Wii U obviously has now, especially with considering how well the Switch has been received and the fact that it's selling, like, insanely, it feels like Super Mario Maker was one of the best things ever made in video games, but will now sort of be lost to history a little bit because of the nature of hardware and how it just came out on the wrong hardware. Yeah, I think it's more the nature of Nintendo. They just... Something about their strategy tells them that it's it's not time to bring it to Switch. I think it will eventually get there, but just not yet. I wonder if they'll have like a fancy stylus that you can use on the Switch screen instead of like fat fingers, so you're not pressing too many things. So that's the one thing I liked about Super Mario Maker is it very precise with the stylus. Yeah, I hope they can do that too. I hope it does come because it was such a fantastic and wonderful idea at the time just kind of lost to the history, kind of like yeah. Shenmue on the Dreamcast. It's kind of the wrong place, wrong time. Well, I think with Mario Maker, there's a bit of a problem that um, they're kind of cannibalizing a lot of Mario with it. So Super Mario Maker, mm. you know, I really wonder why they brought out the Super Mario Brothers Wii U Deluxe. On the same? Yeah, yeah, for Switch. And, you know, that could be why there's no Mario Maker yet, because why would you... Play that Re Replay that game for yeah. the fifth time when you could play new stuff in Mario yeah. Maker. Like, it makes sense with stuff like Odyssey because you cannot obviously create that in Mario Maker. There's limitations, of course. But yeah. especially with the uh, skin of Super Mario U, um, 
you could basically just remake that game one-to-one. You just look at the level plans and yeah. redesign it anyway. Yeah, so I imagine they're just pacing it out. I hope so. I hope it I hope it reaches a bigger audience than it did. We could see some really cool stuff. Especially if you're going to the islands, it would be very helpful. I'll send you the Switch updated version if it ever comes out, Lucas. Okay. So you, wait, you can send hardware too? I mean... This is a little loosey-goosey, this whole uh I mean, you're going thing. to an island full of dinosaurs. I don't know what you expect here. Yeah, okay, true. <laughs> I mean, you got to hope that you've survived long enough for when it comes out, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so let's listen to some music from the next game. Um, the next game is a game that only came out last year as well. It was uh, It's the sequel to a game that came out in various forms over over like the mid 2000s and then had like a full release it's a japanese made game it's the uh not the only japanese game including super mario maker i guess it is the only japanese game on this list um and it's it was made not too far away from where i used to live so let's listen to some music from this next game and let's of course dive straight into it Jumping into the next game on Lucas's list, we're halfway there now. Uh, the next game is a sort of. Would you classify it as a roguelike? No. No. Some people call it uh, Metroidvania. Yeah. Some people think it's a roguelike. Some people maybe think it's like a Metroidvania. Um, it's a game that released. Uh, was it maybe July, August of last year? Sometime in the summer of last year. Um, it's a sequel to the La Mulana series. This game was a game that came, uh, was, I believe it was the first Japanese Kickstarter game when Kickstarter released in Japan. So you could make Japanese, uh, localized projects out of Kickstarter. This was one of the big ones. Uh, it's developed by Nigoro who are based in my old city of Okayama. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, I live in Kyoto as of 2019, and it came out and it received incredible reviews. It's sitting at a 9 out of 10 on Steam ratings. Uh, and it, it kind of blew up. I didn't think it would get such a such a fan following. I know La Mulana kind of had like a cult following. It's tough as nails. Incredibly difficult game. Uh, but it seems people are loving La Mulana too. But Lucas, it doesn't seem like the kind of game you'd want. You'd, you'd have the patience for if you only play games at a short span. Right, bring me back to the island, and I've got plenty of patience. Uh, actually, no, I really liked La Mulana 1. Okay. Uh, but didn't finish it. I think that's the case for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and I had, over the years, kept 
bumping into the Nigoro guys at different stuff in Japan, yes. basically. Uh, and they were slaving over this game for a really long time. Uh, and I knew that when it came out, I would basically give it a shot. And I love it. And it has a lot of the same qualities that La Mulata 1 has. And the game they were copying, uh, sort of yeah. Gallus or something like that. So for an old MSX game, which I never played, so maybe it doesn't have those qualities. But La Mulata 1 is like finding an ancient scripture that's 10,000 pages long and <laughs> full of coherent mythology and characters and items and things like that. So it is, when you play it, when I play it anyways, it is completely foreign and unusual to me. And that's one of the things I really love about it is the, the mystery of that what's going on in that game is so strong. And they have so much writing in that game. I can't imagine how they localize this absolute beast of a game. Uh, there's hundreds of characters. It's it's like a Metroidvania. Imagine a Metroidvania with thousands of keys and thousands of abilities and items and things. So every time you get just a few feet forward, there's something blocking your way. And it's not always the same category of thing that, that blocks your way. And so the, the number of different abilities and actions and characters and stories and narratives they have in that game is just insane. Uh, but the end result is I cannot understand it at all. And to me, that's r really appealing. <laughs> you want to like dig deep into it and yeah, sort of and get obsessed I, and, with it. And you can. Everything is totally uh, coherent. Uh, so, not coherent. With, I can, you know, living in Japan, one of the things you lose is your English vocabulary. But um, yes. everything ties in together well. And it's all uh, well matched. And... It takes it's a long coherent, time, but it needs piecing together. Yeah, and it takes a long time to get there. So I've this is probably the game I played the most this year, actually, and I haven't finished it yet. Uh, How many hours do you have you put into it? Uh, well, I guess twenty eighteen, I guess in the past year, maybe like fifty hours or something like that. Oh, okay, that's pretty. So, decent, I mean, it, considering yeah, how it's busy not, you've been, it's not insane, but it's more than anything I've ever put in anything in the last like ten years. Probably. <laughs> so <laughs> I know that feeling so well. <laughs> yeah. So it it's just really it's um it's very hard in places. I think they were a little too obscure in the design in a few places uh, or in sort of what you're supposed to do next. But uh, I really love it because of how strange and unusual, but also well put together it is and it has it's uh it's not an action game but it has little bits of action uh, it's mostly a sort of puzzle metroidvania game it kind of has a bit of an not an awkward control scheme but the 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 weight of everything i find is really weird yeah it's a classic kind of throwback uh controls where you can't control your jump once you leave the ground you can't move your character very much yeah but um that stuff you get used to. That becomes part of the charm, I guess, of it. So I've played 50 hours of this. I've gotten a certain amount through the game so far. I'm totally stuck. I have no idea what to do next. <laughs> I need this island to help me finish this game. So, uh, Shall we send, like, Imiya... Uh, what's his name? I think his name is... Is it Imiya-san? I forget yeah. that. I yeah, there's there's, there's a couple guys there I met and I yeah, yeah Nimura there's Nimura san and um, uh, Nakamura san I think and Nimura san two different guys. Yes, yeah. Um, can we should we send him over as well? Uh, if we he remember, he might be, not remember be, everything. They worked on this so long and it is so deep. And actually, this is one of the things where 
they wrote the game in Japanese. All this lore, all this narrative stuff, all these thousands of pages of text were all written in Japanese and had to be localized into English. And I can't even imagine the scale of that job. Uh, so he may he might not be able to help if he's not totally in tune with the localization. Maybe. I would say don't don't make him suffer. He, we don't know if he wants to be on this island with dinosaurs, and until we know, <laughs> we, yeah, let's not. Sure, pitch it to him. So hey, look, right, the guy who made Oberdin, he's got this. It's got it's like the start of a video game in in itself. Look, he, yeah. he like receives a letter. It's written by you, creator of Oberdin and Papers Please. He's like, hey, look, we've we've crossed paths before. I love your game, but I'm stuck in a d- dinosaur deserted island, and I need your help. Will you answer the call? Can you? Can I bring people? No. It seems the, pr- you the bring brand- him. Okay. Well, he's people. He, you can. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. He, but he's he's per he's person. Uh, he's I sing- see. Singular I person. So I can only bring him. <laughs> Why? I Who mean, else yeah, are you thinking? Well, it's just if it's wide open, then I I bring all my my buddies. You know, my friends, my family. Just would you bring, bring all would you bring me along? If you got some, yeah, you got some supplies. Maybe we could talk. Oh wow! Is, is that how it's going down? Everyone, I mean, everyone's at least meat, supply of meat, right? Does so. does Nar- Nar- Well, I guess Naramura, Naramura San, that's his name. Naramura San. Um, I guess he. I was gonna say, why does he get a free pass? But then he's like your Lama Lana Two guide, isn't he? I well, I don't know. You were the one to give him the pass, so I haven't decided yet if we should even ask him. <laughs> I think we shouldn't. I think he's yeah. We don't want to bother. He, he, maybe he's working on La Milana three. He probably is. Best he's been working on him, that series, yeah. I think, for like fifteen years now. I think that's yeah. all he does. Yeah. yeah, he used to live not that far away from me in Kuraski in Okayama. Um, I would stumble across those guys at Unity meetups in Okayama quite frequently. Yeah, cool. Very nice guy. Very nice. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're all great guys. So, we should talk about the next game on your list. Um, So, we should listen to some music. As always, we should dive straight into it. To the next game on Lucas's list, I believe this is the first game in this series that you're going to take. Uh, yeah, good question. Maybe I take the second one. Okay. Maybe the first one. Probably the second one, just because the first one is a, the second one is a superset of the first one. So yeah, I'll take the second one. Okay, so the second game in this series, <laughs> which is also developed by the same uh, developers at the time this this series has since gone on to different hands some might say for the worst depending on how much you're a fan of the series um but the developers of course are looking glass studios those incredible guys like ken levine and all those wonderful guys that went off to do other 
wonderful things. Uh, it released back on PC originally in February of 2000 when I was a wee boy. It's the stealth video game. Well, it's the second stealth video game. The first game kind of revolutionized the stealth genre, uh, hinging off the back of Metal Gear Solid, kind of building up the stealth game series and genre that we know and love today. Published by Eidos Interactive, it is Thief 2, The Metal Age. Lucas, why Thief 2? The Thief games for me were pretty transformative as far as how I viewed video games. Uh, I I was a big Quake fan at the time. Played a lot of Quake action games, yes. Doom, things like that. Thief somehow married this simple stealth mechanic with a really, really great topical story. So the story fed into the mechanics and just the style and the clarity of the gameplay and the setting, all the characters, the visuals, everything about it just blew me away. Uh, and especially, it's not such a big deal now, but back then it was on its own engine, it's on something called a dark engine. And back then it was basically you had, uh, well, you started with the Doom engine, then you would have kind of rip-offs of that, like in Rot 3D, uh, or the Build engine. Uh, then there was the Quake engine, and there was Unreal. And so you didn't really see complicated 3D engines with animated characters that often that were not one of those typical engines. Yeah. So the, the Dark Engine was something new, and it just put a little extra sauce on everything. Everything was a little bit different than what I was used to seeing before, and that was enough, uh, along with all the gameplay and everything else that was great about the game, to really hook me. And one of the... Uh, things that's really great about Thief 1, 2, and all those is that they released the level editing tools really early with the game. So there was a huge uh, community of people making games, making uh, mods and levels for this for Thief. So once you finish the main campaign, you could play hundreds, maybe thousands of fan-made levels, and they were all pretty good. And the reason they were pretty good, this is counterintuitive, is that the tools were terrible, just awful. So you needed to be somewhat competent in your ideas and your execution and just even finish a level. So the overall quality... And the lore in Thief is pretty strong, too. The, the whole setup is really good. The, they, they pump the, the good ideas into your head and they kind of let them grow. So if you were good enough to make a level, they usually ended up being pretty good. Okay. So be, because you're giving me more than a DVD here to go to this island... If I'm going to go, I would take Thief 2 and every level that's ever been made for it, basically, and enjoy those. And one of the cool things I really like about Thief is that you the gameplay, you say it's a stealth game, but it's, uh, it's not, you can approach the game in different ways. And one of the ways is you can sneak around, but in other ways you can kind of go in blazing, uh, swords blazing, and, uh, and do it that way. Or you can sneak around. And there was this attachment with the loot as well, where you're looking for loot and you can find, or you can care about loot in different levels, basically. You can not care about it at all, or you can care about it a lot. And so that changes the way you play as well. So there's a lot of different ways to play even one level in Thief. So it's one of the games where I really, I played it a lot. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. And there's a lot of depth there, which I experienced. And I can probably draw out a lot more depth if you give me an island and a, a couple of Blu-rays full of levels. <laughs> that is, you know, that's going to give you a lot of time to both make and play stuff. With this kind of game, it it feels like we don't really have games like Thief 
to or thief in general anymore like very singular focused uh, building upon a, a genre almost like a genre piece but it was kind of the original version of that yeah they came out of the gate with such a strong and different mythology i think just a core setup was so good um that uh right out of the, the gate they were set up for something great but uh i will say that uh I, I love Thief 1. It's probably my favorite in his series. Thief 2 builds on that, so it's, like I said, a superset of Thief 1. Yeah. But but adds a lot of cool stuff. The Metal Age theme is really, really good in that game. Uh, Thief 3 was moved to the Unreal Engine, and a lot of people complained about that, but I love Thief 3 also. Uh, it's not as good as Thief 1 and Thief 2, but you can be you can be a tiny fraction of Thief 1 and Thief 2 and still be really good, and that's what Thief 3 is for me. Uh, and then Thief 4, I also love that game. And uh, <laughs> it's one of the things where I was, I played that game and I was really surprised that people who loved the other Thief games did not like it. Because for me, it had pretty much all the elements that I loved about Thief 1, Thief 2, and Thief 3. Uh, maybe not perfect, but like I said, you don't need to even reach Thief 1 and Thief 2 levels to be really good in my mind. So I enjoyed the entire series. And if you give me a Thief 5, I'll play the hell out of that too. So it's not so much like the stealth mechanics and the stuff that other people would talk about extensively about this game. I've never really heard anyone talk about this sort of mythos. Obviously, Garrett has like kind of become quite a popular character in video game mythos himself, as a, as you know, the, one of the sort of not original mascots, but you know, on the PC side of things, he was always kind of like, oh, you know, we have this really cool guy who is a part of this franchise. But I've never really heard anyone talk about sort of the story behind Thief and the sort of build-up to that. Only people sort of focus in on talking about mechanically why Thief is so special. Yeah, I don't know. The, for me, it just matched up so well. You have a thief and your job is to take things. And that job is, <laughs> is expressed through the exact thing that you're doing in the game. You're not shooting guys or... Uh, solving puzzles or anything else you're just taking stuff and that's what the character is so th that matched up really well and then your adversaries in that game each one of them adds sort of a twist on what you've been doing before they kind of subvert what you were doing before that was you were going through castles and now you're in the forest facing the trickster and then now you're in this other place uh this crazy metal fortress facing yes um, the the metal guys or i can't Karis, i think his name is um so the way that the story tied into the mechanics was what really struck me and stuck with me. Uh, but the story itself was really good, in my opinion. It was kind of subdued. It wasn't over the top. There weren't people talking all the time. Um, and it was delivered in these really fantastic cutscenes in the first two games. Just stylistically really awesome. And a little bit uh, in my wheelhouse because they were maybe technically not that hard to do. They were, you could tell that... Production-wise, that they chose this style because it's something that a small studio could do. Uh, but to me, they're just perfect, basically. So, uh, when was the Thief Two came out? Like two thousand and one. Uh, don't ask me about dates. A couple years after Thief One was on. <laughs> I would guess so. <laughs> I think it was okay. Maybe two thousand. I think it was two thousand. And sort of, you were getting into the video game industry, and kind of around that time, if I'm correct in saying. No, I was. I wasn't before then. Uh, I was in in into Quake, and I think we might have shipped uh, Gearhead Garage by then. Okay, so like uh, when you 
when you're making games at, at the same time games like thief and thief 2 are coming out and uh, and other games we've spoken about do you look at these games as like and even now when you see games like la milana 2 games that you kind of get obsessed with how much do they affect like you personally as somebody who makes games back then maybe they would affect me a lot uh now i'm too old to be affected i i've already i'm all calcified basically so um it's more that i'm looking for the game that matches what i already want now when i played thief thief showed me kind of the, the core of what a really good game could be that wasn't some crazy triple a blockbuster phenomenon uh, and that's kind of the one big lesson I learned from Thief is that with these small core mechanics and uh, a well-integrated narrative, you can make an awesome game. Excellent. Well, speaking of narrative, let's throw it out the window. And get it there, get it, get it away from us. Let's let's throw it all the way to fucking Mars, and let's talk about the next game, because you got your start making mods for Quake. And although we're not kind, we're not going to go that far into it, it's not Quake, the next game, but it's along a similar line. You've hinted a little bit at sort of starting out with shooters and stuff like that, so it's about time we actually sort of talked about a shooter. So let's listen to some a very kick-ass soundtrack. And let's, of course, dive straight into it. So jumping into the next game on Lucas's list, it's a game that's developed by id Software. It was published by GT Interactive and directed by Sandy Peterson. It released in September of 1994. Oh wow, a long time ago now. Uh, it's the first person shooter video game. Doom 2. Not sure. Doom. Doom yeah. 2. Not the, not the reboot Doom either. Doom 2. Yeah, I need that double barrel shotgun. Lucas, the next game you're choosing is Doom 2. So you, obviously we talked a little about you getting your start with sort of Quake mods and stuff like that. Obviously Quake must have been very formative for you as well. But why Doom 2? Yeah, for me Quake was formative in the 3D aspect. But Doom 2 is was the game back then when... where you re That's the first game where you see it and you think, I have to get a computer to play this game. Uh, there's just no question. This I need. This needs to happen. I need to get a computer to play Doom, uh, and <laughs> just timing-wise, it was Doom Two for me, not Doom One. Um, okay. And uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a game where once you get half decent at it, you it's just a lot of fun. I don't know. It's one of those action games that's a lot of fun, and you know, the, given the sort of nature of this question, 
something I could play for a long time. Just as there are lots of Super Mario Maker levels, there are probably more Doom 2 levels, uh, fan-made levels. So give me Doom 2 and maybe even a CD would be enough of wads, and I could probably be happy for a really long time just playing those. And what happens, I think whenever somebody starts playing Doom for the first time, they turn on the cheat where they're invincible and they play and they love it. Uh, but once you start to play without the cheat and you start to use the rockets when you get them instead of hoarding them, uh, you sort of slip into the skin of what Doom is uh, and how you play it, and it's just a ton of fun. You know you die, you save, you reload, whatever, but living on the edge of a really crazy Doom 2 level or Doom level is a lot of fun that I could you know, see myself doing on an island between killing dinosaurs and stuff riding dinosaurs it wouldn't kill <laughs> i i can feel i can see the spirit of why you'd want to kill dinosaurs now was shooters like the your first introduction to video games was this like the first genre that you were really sort of playing a lot of no nah, it's just a timing thing i was probably in high school when doom came out so that was when this game would be laser focused into my head you know into my brain this this kind of shooting action game it wasn't definitely wasn't the first game I played. It wasn't the first action game I played. Just everything is so well done. It's another one of those mechanically very simple, but uh, with lots of depth because you know you could do anything with the levels that you wanted. And nice. it, it it is it didn't teach me much honestly because I I don't make those kind of <laughs> games at all. No, it's you just, do not. It's you just a lot of, of a lot of, lot of fun to play. And you know, would I'm, you make a game like this? No, I couldn't. It's one of those things. I couldn't make a, a straight shooter. I couldn't make a straight platformer. There's a lot of things I can't do just because I don't think about them in in ways of construction. I can enjoy them, enjoy playing them, but I can't think about how would I do this in my own way. Because it's so like off-piece for the kind of genre of game you make that you, your brain doesn't... That's the problem with sometimes when you make games or you work on games is that it's hard to separate picking them apart to just enjoying them. Yeah, so I right. I I guess I can turn my construction the production brain side of my brain off, brain off yeah. yeah, when I play these sort of games. And I still uh enjoy I mean Doom two thousand sixteen was amazing. I think it was that Doom Doom four, let me just say, was amazing. I love yeah. that game. Uh Bethesda's Doom three was also really good. Maybe not perfect, but I think um, It doesn't have the greatest of uh fan yeah, but as as somebody who makes games and somebody who considers himself, uh, you know, into 3D and things like that, that's the first game where lighting was a first-class citizen, which is easy to forget. That's the first game where characters were normal mapped, uh, and they invented that whole pipeline, that whole tech for Doom 3. So for me, that game stands out because it was so technologically amazing. Uh, and then Doom 4, I loved it. They really nailed this... Uh, the duality of you want to stay back, you want to hang back and shoot guys, but there's the the mega kill or whatever when you get close, uh, the gory kill. Oh yeah, you, you want to get in close because it feels <sighs> so satisfying, and that, I feel like that, they that, they really nailed that, just like nailed, they nailed the shit out of that. Yeah, the feel and the sound of the animation yeah. is so fluid; it works so well. Yeah, and the music and the audio in that game is amazing. So they're still hitting out of the park, and I still love playing those games but i would never make one myself i just don't have the tools set in my mind to put one of those together is it difficult because as you sort of talked about with doom 3 like the technology pipeline they built that was the first of that thing as your skills have progressed you you you're never going to admit like 
your own skills and that kind of thing, but you are very talented in many aspects. And as you get more enthusiastic about tech and stuff like that, is it hard to scale down like what you want to do? Or you, or you do look at other games and you're like, I kind of want to do that like with the technology and that kind of thing. Um, I don't think so. There are cases where I have an idea that is based on technology, um, but it would usually be exclusively speaking that it would use that one technology in a, in a way that I thought was interesting. It wouldn't be just in order to have some advanced thing in the game. Okay, so not the way Doom would have done it. Yeah, kind of like I, would, I wouldn't for the sake of add that. a tech. Right. Well, not necessarily that, but I wouldn't add a tech just to make it look better than another game, for example, or just to have something that another game didn't have. That tech would have to be integrated into the gameplay and the narrative and, and other things like that. I mean, it's a whole... The, the one-bit thing for Oberdin started out as, I just want to make a one-bit 3D game, but that wove its way into every facet of the design of the game and the structure of the game and the audio and the narrative and everything was was all hitched very closely with the presentation. So there are times when I think, okay, I really want, this sounds like a cool tech. Uh, I made a game called Mightier, which is based on, uh, you would print puzzles from your printer, then you would draw on the puzzle with a pen, and then you would hold it up to a camera, and it would scan it into the game, and you would create a yeah. level that way, basically. That was a case where I really, this was some, very difficult tech to get working and it's i wasn't trying to compete with anyone else by having better tech it's just that was the, the core of the gameplay mechanics that i wanted were based on this technology so that's that would be my tack for for more tech so so when very I see simply something, going down one way trying yeah. to utilize something to the best of its ability right so when i see something like doom 3 i would think okay how can lighting be important into the game and actually thief did that already so that avenue was already taken to its Maximum. Yeah. <laughs> it's maximum conclusion. <laughs> yeah. So Thief did you know, nail that. I can just enjoy Doom games from now on. Nice. Well, we should sort of jump into uh, another shooter, kind of. But, you know, following along the line of how Ken Levine followed after Thief and intersecting with shooting as well. Look at it. We're all tying it into, like, it's a nice professional podcast. Let's listen to some music from the next game. And let's, of course, dive into the penultimate game on Lucas's list. So jumping into the second to last game on Lucas's list, it is a first-person action role-playing survival horror game with a character that scared the fucking shit out of me when I was a kid. Um, dealt irreparable damage to me playing uh, 
anything made by Ken Levine until I played Bioshock. It was developed originally, uh, it was sort of in tandem with Looking Glass Studios and Irrational Games, which was sort of Ken's new studio after leaving Looking Glass. Uh, I think it was originally intended to be like a standalone title, but then they tied it into System Shock, the, the game before this. It released on PC in August of 1999. It is System Shock 2. So... Please tell me, Lucas, you were as scared of Shodan as I am. Scared? Yeah. I mean, you're there, going to there's an some island good... full of dinosaurs. Like you, you're, you're pretty, you're mentally pretty tough. I feel. Yeah, there's a lot of good jump scares in that game, though. There's a lot of good scares in that game. That game has a really nice atmosphere, uh, where it you, does. Yeah, it's easy to be terrified, even though the only thing stalking you is a 120 poly zombie who has, you know, no weapons and no attack <laughs> at all are you trying to say nine-year-old liam was a coward is that what you're trying to say lucas no i've never said that <laughs> but why are you taking system shock 2 then uh have you played the first one i've not played the first one i played system okay. Shock 2 yeah only two is good as far as i can say i mean i i played a lot of two and i gotta take it to an island with me and one of the cool things about system shock 2 is that it's kind of a it's another game where you you can play it different ways, a lot of different ways. Kind of like Thief, but it's more explicit here. So you can pick different classes and upgrade different things and approach levels differently. So it's just it's a it's a really wonderful game, uh, first off, but it's also got a lot of depth, so it's why I would take it with me when I had a lot of time to play it. So this is a thing, obviously, going to an island. Um, we haven't really touched on it with sort of Doom 2 and stuff like that, but they're, you know, extensively moddable. And System Shock 2 to an extent as well. With linear games, even sort of RPG games based like like System Shock 2, do you not feel like you're very quickly going... It's going to run out its... Uh, not its welcome, because, you know, games are games, but like very quickly the value of taking it as one of the eight choices will fade away. Yeah, maybe. But nobody said this would be easy. Uh, <laughs> That's true. I mean, you only made it harder for yourself. Yeah, I mean, just the the idea that I, I need to predict what I want to play for the rest of my life is already kind of tough. Uh, and a couple of these are safe bets. Uh, Tetris and, you know, Mario Maker. And then I wanted, you know, I just want to pick something that has a little... Maybe it's less safe, is more risk, more likely to to tire, wear me out. But I, in my days now, I don't have a lot of time to play a lot of games. So if I I got to think, if I did have a, a lot of time to play games, what would I play? And you know, right this week when you ask me, I would think, well, maybe I want to go back and play System Shock Two more. So yeah. I'll, throw, I'll throw it on those lists and, and get it in under the door. So now the time sort of Oberdin is sort of. You know, it's not selling down, but it's, you know, it's it's going into maybe a little more, less, I hope for you anyway, a little more stress-free. Uh, do you have the time to play games now? Are you looking to go back and not play games you missed, but go back and revisit games like System Shock 2? Or like, I f kind of have the time now, I feel like going back and playing this. Uh, no, not, not yet, unfortunately. I, I still, yeah, I'm still busy enough that i couldn't just sit down and play system shock 2 I, I you know i slip in an hour or two of la mulana every once in a while or i yeah. try um 
play an indie game every once in a while just to keep from going crazy, but I don't have the the desert island deserted island like Time. no pressure just yeah sit back <laughs> and, and enjoy what you're playing and anything i play now it's it's with the mind of i need to get it need to get it done i've got a really a, i've got a really good idea for you lucas what you can What's do that? is yeah. you, obviously Oberdin took four four and a bit years mm-hmm. your next game can also take four and a bit years but actually two of those years you're not doing anything but playing video games and then yeah, you I, can make a game that is two years in development, and then no one will question you. Yeah. I mean, I plan to make Oberdin in six months, so I'm not <laughs> sure that I could work any particular angle on scheduling. <laughs> then just take two years off and play video games, I guess. I think, it, yeah, more like that. More like I'll just take some time off. Yeah. When things cool down. And, I think and I'm, just play- trying to, I'm just trying to... I'm it's, just trying to save you from the potential backlash uh, of the internet. Ah, uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> if you put a label on it that you're going on holiday, people will be angry. People aren't allowed holidays. The internet doesn't allow for holidays. Yeah. Well, if I did take a holiday, I'm not sure I'd play... I would even play games, you know? I really want to play games, but I also have, you know, young kids that I could play with, that sort of that thing. That is true. So, that is true. And your kids are adorable. The deserted island sets it up nicely so that I have nothing else to do except survive. So, in that case, is that the trade-off? You're like no kids, but video games is good. But is the well, trade-off? I don't know. You, there was only one guy I could take with me before. <laughs> so if I could take my family, uh, this was up for yeah, discussion. But this is like a moral discussion now about morality and whether you would take your kids to a dinosaur-infested island. Are you kidding? Yeah, they would love to see that stuff. <laughs> but you have to protect them. That oh, we're all in it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, that'd be the business. That'd be great. <laughs> Speaking of taking games like System Shock Two, then what I did want to ask you then is because this isn't this isn't a list of like your favorite games ever, but games that would be practical to take to a deserted island and more. And you're sort of taking System Shock because you'd feel like it would be fun to play on a deserted island. What is actually your favorite game, and why hasn't it made this list? Uh, it's on the list. It's Thief. I think if I had to pick a favorite game, it would be okay. Thief, Thief 1. Yeah? Okay, so then we did tie in some nostalgia into this episode then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. Well, just like Showdown, we're going to fucking Showdown and end the episode, sadly, after the next and final game, which I feel is going to be interesting because I feel like it's one of the games you haven't played. Right. At so, all. At all. And it is one of those that has appeared on the show before for that very reason, because it feels enticing to get into, but nobody has any time to get to grips with it. Um, So it'll be incredibly interesting to end the episode on this wonderful choice. So let's listen to what the hell it is I put in this part as I do every time for this video game, because it has no music. It just has weird mythos on the internet with songs that surround it that gets slotted into this part so let's jump into the final game on lucas's list and then unfortunately and very sadly send him away to his dinosaur island
So jumping into the final game on Lucas's list, the final of his eight, unfortunately. I mean, unfortunate for us because we don't get to talk to him anymore, but also unfortunately because he has to go fight dinosaurs. Now, picture that in your head. But the final game is a game developed by Tarn Adams. It's released on Windows and Mac and Linux over the years. It was originally released in its first form in 2006, over 12 years ago. And since it gets updates, I think, every single month, it is sort of a role-playing game that is uh, part construction and also management, and also a roguelike. It's made by the two brothers. It is Dwarf Fortress, or as it's officially known, Slaves to Armok, the God of Blood, Chapter 2, the Dwarf Fortress. Lucas, as we've established, you've never played this game. But it's one heck of a game to try and to get into. So why are you taking it with you? I just want to rewind a bit. Uh, I'm not necessarily going to be fighting all the dinosaurs. I feel like <laughs> there's going to be factions of dinosaurs, and I'll befriend one faction. Do you think faction. dinosaurs are that smart? Uh, maybe not that smart, but I'm going to go in this way anyways. It, if what? I... If, you know, you like you get the guys you can ride, and then you use those to attack the guys who are killing so all the baby pigs. Who is a good dinosaur to ride? I feel like this is very important. Um, well, the Tyrannosaurus can be good for riding, uh, but I feel like trying to befriend that guy from the offset is going to be very difficult. What we can do is we can set up some kind of smoke signal system beforehand, and then once I get the lay of the land and figure stuff out, I'll signal back to you. And you can update your audience on, you know, who's good dinosaur. Who, what faction you joined. Yeah. yeah. I okay, feel so. like this should be a Twitter poll where you have, like, four different dinosaur factions. Yeah. And then everyone should vote, and that's the one you have to ride. Obviously, Stegosauruses can't count because that would be difficult to ride. You could work out some kind of maybe harness. You could, like, something. sit in between its armor plating. Yeah, there you go. And then you're protected. So. You're, yeah, there you go. Maybe, maybe I should bring you with me to the island. Seems like you've you some pretty solid ideas here. You see, now I feel valued. Yeah. Whereas before it was all about, whoa, Skip what the whole smoke signals have? thing. Yeah, and just do yeah. bring you with me. Yeah. yeah, see? He can use my brain, not my supplies. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, so Dwarf Fortress. Dwarf Fortress, yeah. the final game on your list, Lucas. Why are you taking Dwarf Fortress? So the first thing is, the, fir the reason I never, I would, I haven't played Dwarf Fortress, and I may never actually play Dwarf Fortress, is because as a game developer, maybe this is common, but it is absolutely terrifying to me to even <laughs> yeah. consider that game uh experience on either side making it or playing it just because of the complexity of it um so i have not played it i've seen i've read about it uh, i know some of the basic concepts that the, that's working with um and you know i put dwarf fortress on here but maybe i would choose rimworld if i had more time to investigate uh rimworld is apparently a, a modern take on dwarf fortress yes uh so yeah, that's kind of it. And, and anything that's that level of scary or terrifying must be good, you know, for a few years of exploring is what I'm thinking. So I'll yeah, Definitely. Throw, that, throw that sucker on the list. And by the time you go to grips with it anyway, it updates pretty much every month. So, yeah, it's changed. You know, I can change with it. Exactly. You can just yeah. keep evolving as the game evolves as well. Yeah. With yep. a game like this that is so a spiraling mess of spaghetti of different systems, like there are many stories everyone has about Dwarf Fortress, um, from like cat vomit breaking the game and making everybody sick to like everybody being drunk and stuff like this. 
as you said, it sort of scares other game developers and that kind of thing. What do you think it is about games that like this that make them so special that so many people can get? Like, how is a game that is made in ASCII graphics been chosen so many times on this show? I think at least one aspect is that it doesn't show you everything so that you can imagine it. And you can imagine something cooler than you could ever put on screen anyways. So uh, in that sense, it taps in, into that very well. Uh, but just the complexity and, and the way that it's structured means that you can build your own stories. And that's also in your head. You, you don't need the game to tell you everything. You just need the game to, to push you along through your own mind into what's actually happening. And you know, from what I know about Dwarf Fortress, that's exactly what it does. You can build... It's very primitive interface, and the interaction is kind of finicky and uh, way too deep and way too detailed, but you can explore any branch of that that you want as far as you want to go so that you're it's basically you're tuning the the game to your own thoughts and your own brain and your own the, your own structure for an interesting story or interesting narrative it's I, i'm a loss because i've always wanted to play games like this but i feel like even i'd have to just resort myself to going to a deserted island to get into something like this yeah, me too. That's why it's on the list here and why I'm not playing it right now. Do you feel like games like this have a disadvantage because of that? Like, you're uh, definitely making it for, like, a certain set amount of people by... If I was if I was younger, I probably would have put that time in. I mean, I put that sort of time into other games. Maybe Quake multiplayer, that sort of thing. I There, were, there was a time in my life when I would have burned hundreds of hours on a game like this. Uh, just not now. <laughs> We all get too old, don't we, Lucas? Yeah. Time passes by, there's dinosaurs to fight. Or ride. <laughs> all right, you're very, very yeah. intent on the riding. Can you make can you make a game that is like an Obradin mod where you get to ride dinosaurs? A In mod one... might be a bit much, but maybe a sequel or something. A sequel where we can ride dinosaurs. Or can one of the deaths be spoilers, can one of the deaths be a dinosaur? I'll yeah, I'll pencil it into the book and we'll see what happens. Can that be my can that be my contribution to special thanks for the next Yeah, game? extra special thanks. Yep, Liam Edwards. <laughs> Lost Voices and Dinosaur Expert. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm moving up in the world. Well, Lucas, it is about time that we send you away then to this deserted lost world where you are going to be riding dinosaurs, my correction there, riding dinosaurs, and playing these eight wonderful games that you've chosen, moving from Tetris, becoming a Grandmaster, to reliving the old times with Thief, and then getting to grips with a game like Dwarf Fortress. It's been such a pleasure to have you, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks a lot, Liam. It was great. It's been such a pleasure. But there is one last question I have to ask you, Lucas. Okay. It's the same question I ask everybody before they move away. And I think I'm very intrigued to know what your answer is because you seem to like to bend the rules a little here. But I'm going to very firmly say, for this answer, you cannot choose PC. Okay? okay? So I think you know where this is going. Obviously, we talk about games on Final Games. It's in the title. But if you could only take one way of playing video games, like one console with you, to enjoy for the rest of your time on a deserted place full of dinosaurs to ride, what console would you take with you? 
do I need to worry about practical things like it breaking or no, charging don't, it? No, or, don't, no. I mean, the controller and the OS and stuff that is built internally into it or the way you interface with it is all you have to worry about. And spec catalog as well is important. Aha! Once again, I have stumped a genius. I mean, it would. It seems to me if I want a lot of games available. So you're saying I can take the the console plus all the games that were made for it? Yes, back catalog included. If you think about the back catalog, because that okay. would just be mean. And I can't do PC. I mean, yeah, it would probably because PC have to can be, emulate everything. That's the yeah. Point. It would have to be PlayStation Two then, even though none of these games are on the PlayStation 2. That's in its favor, though. You wouldn't want to take games already on the PlayStation 2 because they are included. Oh, this is additional. Yeah, okay. PS2, then. Easy. Nice. All those wonderful uh, JRPGs you can get to grips with as well as Dwarf Fortress. Yeah. Just, yeah, the library there. You can't beat that. Li yeah, the what, what do other people say? What's Switch the has been pretty popular recently. But there's like 50 games for Switch Top. So. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of indie games now. Okay. This, what this else? Is a good what amount. else? Uh, PlayStation Four, uh, in recent times. Okay. Uh, the Super Nintendo. Yeah, maybe PlayStation Three with backwards compatibility. Does that give me two generations there? Or uh, yeah, you cheating? see, yeah, no, no, I wouldn't say it's cheating, but I would probably still only give you the PlayStation Three back catalog. Yeah, I'll take PS. You can take the fat one that has backwards compatibility, but it'd be useless. I never had a PS Two, so again, that's something I kind of always wanted, and never had, so. I would be able to relive you know, some some yeah. memories you could have made. Yeah, catch up on some stuff. <laughs> well, Lucas, it is time that we send you away with everything that you have accumulated today and get ready to ride some dinosaurs. What are you going to do? I feel like this is completely action oriented. Are you going to like parachute into this fucking island? Like, how are we sending you? Uh, speedboat. Give me a speedboat with uh, just enough gas to get up to there because I, yeah, the, I could use a boat to. to Circle the island from a safe distance, you know? Okay, and then you can see... Wait, no, it has to, like, explode, so you can't, like, then use the boat to escape the island. You put some breakers there, you know, just to keep me from getting back. Okay, I'll trust you. Yeah. I'll trust you. Buddy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Please tell the wonderful listeners who have made it this far uh, where they can find you on the internet. And I believe there is a fucking wonderful mystery game, basically the best detective game ever made, uh, recently came out. You should tell them about that. Uh, thanks, Liam. So I made a game called Return of the Overdin. Just search for it we on uh, wherever. Uh, we, yeah, we, we have teamwork. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is Ducope. D-U-K-O-P-E. And that's it. Please check, please check out the Overdin if you haven't already. If you own a PC, you have Steam, or you own a Mac, for the love of God, try Overdin. I have, I have waited and held it inside of me because I don't want to gush too much at Lucas. He's probably used to it by now. And I want to, I want to stay at that friendly level. But... For goodness sakes, play the Oberdin. It is an incredible video game and has the best Welsh voice acting in in video games. I mean, of course. But thank you so much to Lucas for appearing on the show and thank you so much to you guys for listening to this episode of Final Games, the first official episode of 2019. Unfortunately, as all you guys will know, my schedule is a bit inconsistent uh, due to my life and being the only person who runs the show. I have recently moved to Kyoto for currently undisclosed reasons, which you'll probably find out within some form space of time um but until then i don't know what's going to happen but we will try to make incredible episodes like the dinosaur riding one of today but as always you can find final games on twitter 
at Final Game Show. You can find me, Liam BME. You can also listen to it on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher and Acast and all those wonderful places. And if you are on there at the same time, you can rate and review it out of five, preferably a five. That would be great. But thank you so much for listening to Final Games Continuously. I hope you've had a good start to 2019. And until the next episode, have a great time playing some video games. The Obra Dinn. Goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.